God, we want to thank you this morning that you have inspired a spirit of generosity amongst your people. Thank you, God, for every act of generosity that we have seen in this church. And we rejoice, Lord, in the abundant provision that we have seen. That we are a church as young as ours that is able to be self-sufficient. We rejoice in that. God, we ask that you would help us to continue to be generous towards the goal, the vision of seeing the name of Jesus made famous. The goal and vision of seeing churches that plant churches that plant churches. So God, continue to work in and through us for your glorious purposes. And God, we pray now as we come to your word in Ruth chapter 3, would you, would you cause us to be still and, and humble and listen this morning? Listen to what you are saying to us through your word. We ask that you would inspire us by the example of Ruth and Boaz. We pray that you might transform us. Fill us with faith this morning, we pray. And we ask it in Jesus' strong and powerful name. And those who agreed said, Amen. You know, there's a lot of uh, discussion in the entrepreneurial tech IT world about Australia being a risk-averse culture. They were a culture that doesn't particularly like taking a whole bunch of risks. We certainly don't see a dynamic like you see in Silicon Valley in the States where there is this massive surge of entrepreneurial risk-taking innovation. In fact, in Australia, we are ranked number one in the world for ease of opening a new business. It's the easiest country in the whole world to open a new business here in Australia. However, we're ranked number 16 in our attempts at innovating new businesses. And so super easy for us to start a business and yet we're very cautious when it comes to innovating and trying new things. And there's a number of factors that go into what creates that culture of innovative risk-taking. But what we see this morning in Ruth is an incredible, bold, risky decision that Ruth makes. A bold, risky decision that Naomi initiates. And it's wonderful and it's brilliant and it's scary and risky. And so this morning I've entitled this sermon, Risky Ruth, because that's exactly what she does. Just to catch you up quickly where we've been, if you've missed the first couple of sermons, we've been introduced to this family, Elimelech and Naomi. They move their family out of Bethlehem, the place of bread, because there's a famine there, to a country called Moab. And there they settle in that country. They live there. Their two sons, Malon and Kilion, marry Moabite women. Elimelech dies. Malon dies. Kilion dies. And we're left with three widows, Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah. Orpah stays in her country with her family, her gods, and her people. And, Naomi, and Ruth clings to Naomi as she heads back to her people in Israel, to Bethlehem. And they arrive. And we see last week, as Brad brought the word to us, Ruth just happening to glean in a field that Boaz happens to own and, and there's this little relationship that begins to develop. And this morning we see that relationship develop even further. So come with me to Ruth chapter 3, starting at verse 1. This is what it says. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash therefore and anoint yourself. Put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But then when he lies down, observe the place where he lies 
and then go uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what to do. Is it just me? Or does that plan sound just a little bit shady? Like, like Ruth, here's the plan. Pretty yourself up, wait till he's merry, had a few drinks, lie at his feet and say, do what you want. Like this, I mean, does that sound like a good plan to you? Boaz has been on the scene for a while now. Ruth has been gleaning in his field, picking up all of the, the loose stalks of grain that have been left behind the harvesters. And, and Boaz has taken notice of her and he's been, let's call it maybe some dignified flirting. He's been generous. He's been giving her a bit of special attention, giving her some special food, allowing her to sit at the table with his workers. This relationship has been developing and Naomi feels that now is the time to act. Now is the time for Ruth to step out and make this thing happen. But you know, harvest time probably only lasts maybe about eight weeks, a little bit longer, as they harvest this crop. There's been no first dates, there's been no coffees, there's been no you know, late night text message chatting, there's been no Facebook inboxing. Like Naomi's plan is this, she wants her to go from hello to proposal, just like that. By 2016 standards, this plan is shady, it's probably a little bit needy, and it's entirely risky. Like for the fellas here, if you, you go on a first date... And the girl that you're on this date with is like, hey, I know it's only our first date, but do you want to get married? I mean, like, what are you going to do at that point? You'd be like, um, I'll call you. Don't call me. Like, needy, no way, not going there. But this is Naomi's plan. She's like, get yourself pretty, go down to the threshing floor, uncover his feet, let's do this. Naomi's plan hinges on the fact that Boaz is a relative. And before you think, whoa, this, can this get any weirder? Like, marry a relative? The plan that Naomi has in mind here and, the, and the, the thing that is driving her towards this is a provision in the Old Testament law for circumstances kind of similar to their situation. You see, if there was a, a brother, a, a man who had a brother who died, there was a provision in the law that required the man to take his dead brother's widow and marry her and have a child with her, preferably a son with her, and then that firstborn son would take the dead father's name and inherit the dead father's inheritance so that his land wasn't lost and the name wasn't lost. And so there's this provision in the law for that to happen. But the problem is, Boaz is not Malon's brother. He's a distant relative. He's not a close one. And so Naomi's plan needs something more than Look, Boaz, you're obliged to do this. Quit wasting time. Get the ring. Let's get the deed done. Now, she needs a bit more than just obligation here for Boaz to marry Ruth. And so her plan is way more subtle. It's way more risky. She says to Ruth in verse 3, she says, Ruth, go wash yourself, go anoint yourself and put on your cloak. This um, process you find popping up a number of other times in Scripture, and it's a very traditional process for a woman to prepare herself for marriage, for example, or for a sexual encounter with her husband or a partner that they would wash and anoint with perfume and get dressed. Boaz has only really seen 
Ruth in the field with her work gear on and you know her King G steel caps and she's sweaty and she's dirty and she's working hard and she's carrying the grain and, and that's all Boaz has really seen of Ruth and there's something admirable about that. But Naomi says to, to Ruth, look now is the time to go and have a shower. Like get clean, wash all the dirt off you, anoint yourself. And that process of anointing would probably have been some form of scented olive oil to you know, cover the BO. This is not a culture that has you know, Rexona 48 hour long lasting protection. And just as a side note, who needs 48 hour protection? Like, do they seriously think we have a shower every second day that you, that stuff is so strong, you get in the shower, you need a gurney to get it out of your armpits. Anyway. Little side note, I just kind of want to go back to the 12 hour, 24 hour. That's sufficient. <laughs> Naomi is suggesting to Ruth here Ruth, get dressed, have a shower, smell nice, go hang out with Boaz. That's phase one. Phase two of the plan is this risky midnight rendezvous on the threshing room floor. Boaz. Naomi says to Ruth, we'll be winnowing. This process of winnowing is something that happens at the end of the harvest where the farmers would gather together in a communal shed called a a threshing shed or a winnowing shed. And what they would do, there was a process of taking their grain and and tossing it in the air with a fork or a a big sheet. And these, um, these sheds were perched up high on hills to take advantage of the winds that would blow through the valleys. And as they threw the stems in the air, the the husk or the wheat of the grain would be caught and blown away. The the light stem would be blown away and the heavy grain would fall to the floor and be swept up, gathered, bagged and used as provision until the next harvest would start. And so Naomi says to Ruth, Boaz is going to be there tonight. He's going to be working hard. And the end of that process of winnowing marked the end of the harvest season. And so there was a huge celebration and party that all of the hard work had been done. And now they had all their food gathered, they could sit back, relax and party and enjoy themselves. And so Ruth says to Naomi, go Wait till the party's done. Wait till Boaz has got a full belly and he's had plenty of wine to drink. And then go lie at his feet and he will tell you what to do. And what do you suppose is going to happen next? He will tell you what to do. This is a risky plan. It's risky because culturally it's entirely inappropriate. This is inappropriate for a, a woman to propose to a man. Like even... Even in 2016, that's not kind of normal. It may not be inappropriate today for a girl to propose to her man, but you don't see it all that often. But certainly in this time, in this culture, this is entirely inappropriate that a woman would approach a man and propose. Additionally, this is inappropriate because Ruth, remember, is a Moabite. If you think back on the history of Ruth's people and and her nation, they started like this. Lot's two daughters had a plan. It involved getting their father drunk and while he was asleep, sneaking in and having sex with him so that they could have children. So like, what is Naomi suggesting Ruth do? Is she like, Ruth, you know what? Just go and be who you are. Go and be that skanky race that you are and sneak in and have sex. Is that what she's doing here? This is a risky plan. Additionally, this is inappropriate because Boaz is older than Ruth. You get a hint of that a little bit later on in chapter 3 where Boaz is kind of a bit chuffed 
that Ruth would pick him. He's like, this kindness is so wonderful that you would choose me over some of the younger, more eligible bachelors in Bethlehem, whether they're rich or poor, whether they're better looking or not. He's kind of chuffed, right? But that makes this inappropriate. This is a culture that had much respect for the elderly. This is a culture that had, that had ways of approaching people who were older than you. And this is just not appropriate for Ruth at that level. She's much younger than Boaz. She's also a slave and he is a master. She is poor. He is rich. At every social conventional level, this is inappropriate for Ruth to be doing what she is doing. We're also told back in chapter 2 that Boaz is a worthy man. That he's honourable, that he's upright, that he's godly, that he loves God. And so this is risky for Ruth because as she comes and uncovers his feet and lies there, Boaz might mistake her advances. Like he, he views her as honourable. He, he likes the fact that she's pouring herself out to serve her widowed mother-in-law. There's something attractive about that. And maybe, maybe this moment will cause Boaz to change his opinion on Ruth. Maybe he misperceives that as a sexual advance that he's not willing to take. It's risky. But worse than that, it could go wrong. Like Boaz might not be the godly man that everyone perceives him to be. He may take advantage of Ruth. Or, or even worse, someone might see what's happened, perceive that adultery has taken place, drag them before the townspeople, and this is a culture that had, the capital, had capital punishment for the sin of adultery, and Ruth may be stoned, they both may be stoned, they may be cast out of the community. This is a risky plan at every single level. Now, to be fair, there's always kind of risk involved in a proposal, isn't there? Will she say yes? I remember a friend of mine, Ben, asking our pastor, Ray, at my last church, if he could propose to his girlfriend, Elaine, in front of the whole church at the end of the service. And uh, Elaine was Filipino, and so Ben had memorized and learnt this Filipino love song and he sang it to her in Tagalog. He got up with his friend Brendan. Brendan played guitar. Ben sang horribly tone deaf, really out of key, sounded bad but it was cute at the same time. And then he got down off the stage, he got on one knee, he opened the box and he said, Elaine, will you make me the happiest man alive and marry me? And she sat there and it seemed like there was an eternity before she would say yes. And eventually her friend's like, you've got to say yes, Elaine. And she said yes, and we celebrated. But it's just that little moment, isn't there? Is she going to say yes? Well, I don't know if you saw um, Liam and, and uh, Amy's proposal, or Liam's proposal to Amy. It was epic. Like it, I think it made the news. Channel 7 even picked it up. Liam filmed this entire video clip of him enacting um, the song Rude by Magic. And it's just phenomenal. If you've got time to go check it out, stalk him on Facebook, look at it. Like four and a half minutes of this epic wedding proposal. He films this video. They hire out a, a movie cinema. All of their friends are there. Amy's sitting in the audience and this screen comes up and there's Liam singing this song, asking her dad if he can have her hand in marriage. And then he pops out in the middle of the cinema with, and he proposes and she said yes and got married. It's wonderful. But it doesn't always work out like that, does it? They don't always say yes. Just do yourself a little favour this afternoon when you get home and YouTube wedding proposal fail or wedding proposal disaster and just enjoy it. Like, 
I did it this week. Josh and I were in the office cracking up at some of these wedding proposals. My, my favourite one was this guy who decided he would propose to his girl in the middle of the shopping mall. And he's got this large portable loudspeaker and a three-piece Spanish flamenco band playing in the background. And he calls the whole shopping centre to attention and says he's got a very special girl here and he wants to say a few things to her. And then he starts like quoting movie lines like, you had me at hello, you complete me, and tries to read this poem to her, but it's just love songs and movie quotes. And he gets down on one knee like this, and she freaks out. She rushes over, and she's, she's like, no, 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 get up, get up. She's trying to make him stand up, and he's like, no, baby, I'm going to do it. And he's on his knee, and he starts proposing, and she just turns around and gets a ukulele from one of the band and whacks him over the head and runs off. Now, I don't know if it's true, but a part of me just really wants it to be true because it's just such a good video. They don't always say yes. It's a risky thing when you propose to someone. And it's even more risky given the context that Ruth is doing this in. But Ruth boldly somehow agrees to Naomi's crazy plan. This is what it says in verse 5. Have a look. And Ruth replied, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went and lay down on the edge of a a heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. Behold, a woman lay at his feet and he said, Who are you? She answered, I am Ruth, your servant. I think this is the first time in the book of Ruth that she's no longer Ruth the Moabite. Or Ruth the widow. I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wing over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Or how? Ruth, come on. Like, talk about going for it, right? She does not hold back. And I don't know if those words came out of her mouth because she intended and purposed and planned for that to take case, or if it was just like she was so nervous, she just blurted out, Boaz, will you marry me? Who knows? But it's brilliant from Ruth. Her words are brilliant. She says to him, spread the corner of or spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. That that language and that image is wonderfully powerful and nuanced and clever, and it's brilliant from Ruth. She uncovers Boaz's feet, the corner of his cloak or robe or blanket. And then she says to him, cover me. Cover me with your wings or with your garment. Protect me. This language here is rich. Boaz would have known what she was saying when she said, spread your wings over me. Because this is language that God uses when he talks of Israel. In Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 8, God says to Israel, he uses this image of a man proposing to his bride in a way of talking about how he's pursued Israel. And he says to to Israel, I've covered you with the corner of my garment. I've pulled you under my wing. I've made a commitment to you, a covenant to you to be your husband, to care for you, to protect you, to be your God. And Ruth is using this very same language. So it's very symbolic what Ruth is doing here by uncovering his feet and asking that Boaz cover her. There is no mistaking 
what she wants from Boaz. But the other brilliant thing about this language that Ruth uses here is, if you remember back to last week, the conversation that happened between Ruth and Boaz, he's kind to her, and Ruth says, who am I that I should receive such kindness from you? What have I done? And Boaz turns to her and says, I've seen the way that you've cared for your widowed mother-in-law. I like that. And then he prays for her. And this is what he prays in chapter 2, verse 12. He says this, The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And so Ruth, not only is she taking proposal language, but she's also taking the very same words that Boaz uses in his prayer. And in effect, she's saying, Boaz, will you be the answer to your own prayer? Will you be the human agent of God's blessing and kindness to me by doing this thing of taking me in, marrying me? It's clever, right? It's very clever by Ruth. It's beautiful. It's humble. It's sensitive to all of the cultural inappropriateness of that situation. But the best thing about it, it is that it is thoroughly unambiguous. Like Ruth states what she wants. There's, there's, no, there's no Boaz just being left to tell Ruth what to do. Like there's no miscommunication. Is she here for sex? Is she trying to seduce me? What is happening here? Ruth just comes and says, Boaz, put a ring on it. That's what she says. There is no ambiguity here at all. She clears the air. She initiates. She proposes. It's a risky plan. How will it play out? Well, verse 10. And Boaz said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. Then all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Interestingly, that language there, worthy woman, It's the very same language that is used at the end of Proverbs 31 where the author of Proverbs is talking about a woman of noble character, a wife of noble character, that the people at the town's gate have a reputation that she is a worthy woman. And Boaz uses those words of Ruth. And interestingly, in the Hebrew Bible, Proverbs finishes and the next book is Ruth. It's not like that in our English Bibles, but in the Jewish Hebrew Bible, that's how it flows. So it's a beautiful little picture of how Ruth is the example and epitome of that woman in Proverbs 31. Everyone knows, Ruth, that you're a worthy woman. Verse 12, And now, it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing, if he doesn't desire you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. Two things I just want to quickly draw out from this, this section here. Firstly, I want, to, I want you to notice their purity. But secondly, I also want you to notice the problem. Do you see the purity and godliness of Ruth and Boaz? I mean, they're in love. Boaz is in good spirits. He's got a full tummy. He's had plenty of wine. Ruth is looking mighty fine, better than she's ever looked before. They're on the threshing room floor. There's no one around. It's midnight. She's under his blanket. Like you wouldn't be surprised if the next sentence said, and Boaz slept with Ruth and she gave birth to a son and they named him. 
because that's kind of how it often plays out. Or actually it says something like, and Boaz knew her. That's the Bible's way of saying it. Or sometimes, even sometimes it says, and Boaz went into her. That's risky language. But you wouldn't have been surprised if that's how it played out, but it doesn't. That's not how the narrative flows. Because Boaz loves God and he loves Ruth and he wants to honour her, not take advantage of her. This is not a one-night stand. This is not some random hookup. It's a beautiful picture of purity and holiness and godliness. And so to those of you who are dating or engaged, or look, even if you're single in a hookup culture, then I, I want you to be inspired by Ruth and Boaz's example of self-control and honour and purity. You know, if you're ever looking for an opportunity to share your faith, talk about what you believe, then just tell someone today that you're not sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend, your fiancé until you're married. That is entirely countercultural in 2016 in Sydney. I mean, it's prudish, it's puritanical, it's old-fashioned. We'll call it whatever you want. But that's weird, right? No one does that. I, I lost count of the amount of times in uh, the time that we announced that Tash and I were getting married and people knew that we were Christians. So many people were like, you know, um, how do I put this? I don't want to be rude or anything, but I, I know you guys are Christians and, and you're getting married. Like, are you guys? And it was, they were just blown away by the fact that we said, well, no, we're not. Like, we're not pretending it's easy, but we're not. You want an opportunity to talk about your faith, then just talk about a countercultural statement like that. But here's the deal. Don't do it in a way that comes across as self-righteous. So often Christians walk around with this sense of self-righteous fulfillment about their sexual purity that makes them better than other people. Nothing's more off-putting than that. But if you're able to demonstrate a conviction that you hold, that your belief and your behaviour match up, I believe that people respect that. Because they see in people something that is genuinely transforming their life. The flip side is someone who says, this is how you should live, don't do this, but I'm just not willing to live by that. And you probably should live by this too. And that's hypocritical and the world hates that. It's the number one objection to the church today. But if we as a church, people who would pursue this kind of holiness and purity, not in a self-righteous way, God loves that. God loves it. And so notice their purity, but also notice there's a problem that arises in this text. Ruth and Boaz are in love, but there's another dude. There's another dude on the scene. The other dude bit an ex-boyfriend or another interested party or that mate of yours who also likes her, but she likes you and he doesn't know that he likes you and it's just messy. There's another dude and he's a problem. There's a problem because he is a nearer relative to Elimelech and Malon than Boaz is. And so according to the Old Testament law, he's kind of got first dibs on the whole redemption thing and, and he's in the way of Boaz and Ruth's, Ruth's magical engagement and wedding and happily ever after. And so Boaz says to Ruth, look, leave it to me. I'm going to sort this out. He reassures her a number of times. You notice he says there, my daughter, don't be afraid. He says, as, as long as the Lord lives, 
This is my commitment to you, Ruth. I'm going to make sure that you are cared for, that you are provided for, that you're not left to your own defenses as a widow. And he wants to marry her. It's not like he's obliged to do this. He wants to marry her. He, he likes her. He loves her. But for now, they have to wait. This is a kind of classic boy meets girl love story. You look at all of the novels and movies, there's always like some twist, some problem that happens in there that has to get solved. It's also a, a story of Ruth's risky, bold faith. She goes after what she needs. She takes all of the initiative she proposes. It's a wonderfully beautiful love story. And Ruth and Boaz are into each other. They like each other. Ruth is attractive to Boaz. Not only does he find her cute, she's younger than him. That works all right for him. She's got this beautiful, risk-taking, genuine faith about her. She's intriguingly different to all of the other girls in Bethlehem as a Moabite. He likes her. And Boaz is attractive to Ruth. I mean, he's got a job. What a good thing, a man with a job. He could provide for her. But not only that, he's generous, he's kind, he's gentle, he's protective, he's caring. This is a classic boy meets girl love story that we see here. And this story is, is a little micro story that represents a bigger story that is happening in the scriptures. A bigger story of God's love for his people with one significant difference. There is someone who initiates in God's love story. It's God himself. He is the initiator. But the significant difference is that at least initially, it seems entirely one-sided. This is what it says in 1 John 4 verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. You see, there's mutual love between Ruth and Boaz. But when you get to this passage, this verse tells us that God has pursued, that God has demonstrated, that God has sent, not because we loved him, but because he loved us. He is the initiator of a one-sided love story at this point. Romans 5 verse 8 tells us that God loved us whilst we were his enemies. Ephesians 2 tells us that we were by nature objects of wrath, enemies. At the right time, Christ died for us. That's Romans 5 8. At the right time, when we were still enemies, Christ died for us. We didn't love God. And there's nothing particularly lovable about us as people. You see, we'd forsaken God. We'd rejected Him, the author of life, the Creator. And instead of worshipping the Creator, we just turned and worshipped all of His creative gifts that He had given to us, exchanging the glory of God for a lie. Forsaken, rejected. But here's the crazy thing. God knows you because He created you. He knows, in fact, He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows your innermost thoughts, those impure motives. And he loves you anyway. He knows all of those hidden secrets that you're too ashamed to tell anyone. And he loves you anyway. He knows the mess. 
and he chooses to pursue and love you. God's love does not depend on how lovable you are. God's love does not depend on the fact that you love him. In fact, it doesn't depend at all on what you bring to the table because all we bring to the table is our sin, our mess, our brokenness. God does not say to us, I will love you if you sort yourself out, if you make yourself more lovable. Like we don't have to put on the pretty dress and the perfume. God says, I love you despite the fact that you can't do that. That's the message of the gospel. This is the extravagant nature of the love of God. That he loves us. Even when we didn't love him, and even when there was nothing lovable about us, he loves us. And you know, his love is demonstrated not in this ambiguous midnight rendezvous on the threshing room floor. His love is demonstrated in another moment of darkness. You remember the story of the cross as they hung Jesus out to die and from noon to 3 p.m. in the afternoon, darkness covered the face of the earth. And that moment when Jesus died on the cross for our sin, taking our place, the penalty, the punishment for what we had done in our rejection and forsaking God, in that moment of darkness, God is demonstrating his love for us from the cross Friends, if you want to know whether or not God loves you, don't look to your circumstances. Look to the cross because that is where God is screaming, I love you. I love you. He cannot love you any more than giving his one and only son to die for your sin, to redeem you and rescue you. That's the love of God. And it's not conditional on your love for him. It's conditional on Jesus' love for the Father. It's conditional on Jesus' work on the cross. You see, the only way, the only way that God can love you, despite the fact that you've forsaken and rejected him, is if Jesus would be forsaken and rejected by the Father on your behalf. The sin would be laid on him and dealt with. I wonder if you know the love of God this morning. Do you know that God loves you? Like he doesn't just like you. He loves you. And he is pursuing you in Jesus. And every single person in this room this morning has made a choice about the love of God. We've either chosen to receive it and accept it and be loved by him. And that radically transforms us. Some have chosen to ignore and reject that love. Maybe some of you are kind of playing hard to get in the middle there somewhere. But friends, I want you to know this morning, God loves you. He loves you with an unconditional love that is not dependent on how good you can be, how lovable you are, or how much you love him. He loves you. So this little love story that we have here between Ruth and Boaz is a, is a preview. It's a trailer for the grander, bigger love story between God and his people, between Jesus and his bride, the church. But for now, in our story, Ruth has a hiccup to her dreams. Verse 14. So she laid his feet until morning, but arose before no one could recognize her. And he said, let it not be known that a, that a woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it out and he measured out six measures of barley and he put it on her. And then she went into the city 
When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Here is Ruth, a Naomi rather, who came back to Bethlehem, crying out, God has made me return empty. And through the kindness and generosity of Boaz, he's taking that emptiness away and filling her again. Do not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Naomi replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how this matter must turn out, for the man will not rest. He will settle the matter today. You know, most marriage proposal answers come fairly quickly. Like if the, if the guy's done a good job, it's a yes. If he's done a poor job, if he hasn't done his research, if he thought that proposing at the footy in front of 35,000 other fans during the kiss cam was a really romantic way to propose, maybe it's a no. But for the most part, the answer comes pretty quickly. Yes, no. But for Ruth, it's a wait. Wait and see. There's a problem. We've got to overcome the problem first. Is Boaz going to be a hero? Will she get her man? Will they be married and live happily ever after? We'll have to come back next week and find out. (laughs) Don't read ahead. Actually, do read ahead. Read ahead. Anyway, whatever you want to do. Ruth here is a a shining example of active faith. And it's kind of weird that you have to put the word active in front of faith to qualify it because faith is never inactive. Faith by its very definition and nature is not merely just intellectual assent to a bunch of propositional truths. Because the devil does that. The devil knows God is real. He doesn't have faith. Faith is more than inactive intellectual assent. Faith is action. Faith looks like getting out of the boat when Jesus calls. Faith, by its very nature, is taking risks under the hand of a providential and sovereign God. And I think we all take risks, don't we? We take risks every day. Like you you take a risk when you buy a car second-hand car. Will it be a lemon? Will it not? Is it good? Has someone looked after it? You don't know. It's a risk. And you take a risk when you change careers or change jobs. You take a risk when you apply for a university degree and study for three years and hope that you're going to get a job at the end of it. You take a risk when you enter into a relationship. Will you get hurt? Won't you get hurt? We take risks all the time, at least in the Christian world, when you get married young and you're not financially self-sufficient yet. We take risks all the time. And you take a risk when you walk over the road. In fact, you take a risk when you go to Wool's and Coles and eat pre-washed packaged lettuce these days. There's risk everywhere. Life is full of risks. Why? Because you don't know the future. We don't know what will happen tomorrow. And so we have to take risks in order to live. Life is full of risks. So why is it when we come to taking risks for the kingdom of God? It seems like we're so risk-averse. We're so unwilling to take a risk and have that conversation. We're so guarded with our financial generosity. We're, we're so unwilling to travel to a place that's dangerous for the sake of the good news of Jesus. You know that security that we desire or even that we think we have? I hate to tell you this, it's a mirage. It's not real. Life is full of risk. But you know, we worship a God who 
doesn't take any risks because he knows the future. He knows what will happen. He has a plan that he works out. You see, God didn't execute his plans kind of hoping that they would have. Like he didn't send Jesus going, gee, I hope the cross works. Right? He, he had a plan and he executed it and it wasn't a risk for God. Even though it was costly, even though it was sacrificial, God is sovereign and his providential hand works out his purposes. And so we worship a God like that. And in that context, we are free to take risks knowing that God is in control. We're free to take risks knowing that he knows the future. We're free to take risks knowing that he is bigger than our mistakes. Because he is a God whose providential hand is always in control, guiding us. That's what we see happening in Ruth. I love how the early church refers to Barnabas and Paul in Acts chapter 15. In Acts chapter 15, the church calls a council together to deal with a problem of these Judaizers, these, these um, Jewish people who go to the Gentile churches and tell them, if you want to be a Christian, if you want to believe in Jesus, firstly you've got to become a Jew, observant of the law, and then you can become a Christian. And so the church council, the leaders get together and figure out what they're going to do with this problem. And then they send this letter along with Paul and Barnabas and others as a report to the churches. And this is how they describe Barnabas and Paul. In Acts 15, verse 25, they say this. It seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them, and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Love that. Wouldn't that be true of me? The people would say, Matt, man who has risked his life, his comfort, his security for the name of Jesus. Friends, let's be a church that takes risks, knowing that God is sovereign, that he's good, that he's glorious, that he's in control. Because faith is not nurtured in comfort and security. Faith is not nurtured when we lean into our own gifting, strength and ability to do things. That doesn't nurture our faith. Faith is never nurtured in a vacuum. Faith is nurtured on the edge. So let's take risks like Ruth, like Boaz, like Paul, like Barnabas. I want to share a story of a couple with you who I used to go to church with at my previous church. They were missionaries. And they travelled with their family to an unreached people group called the Tugutul people in Papua New Guinea. A long time ago, they've been back from the mission field for, for quite a long time. But before they went in their training process, they found out that this tribal group was um, horrifically violent and uh, potentially cannibalistic. And they had two girls, two young twin daughters. And they made a decision to move to this tribal unreached people group. And they got there and they built a shack in the middle of the jungle and they lived there for seven years before they even got to a point where they would talk about Jesus with these people. They started in Genesis. They worked their way through to Revelation and I think at Genesis half the village got saved. Everyone came to Jesus. This village is now planting churches in unreached people, tribal groups throughout Papua New Guinea. It's a phenomenal story of God's grace. But here's the thing. John and Betty made a decision to take a risk to move their family to a violent, cannibalistic tribal group that might kill them. John tells a story of 
um, one of the warriors who came to him after he had come to faith in Jesus and there was enough time passed, one of the warriors came to John and said, you know, John, there was a day when you first arrived that I'd been given instructions to kill you. And we were walking through the jungle to collect supplies and you took a step down on a little ledge and your head was just at the right height for me to take my machete and chop your head off. And that's what I was going to do. But as I was standing there with my machete in my hand, I couldn't lift it off my hip. There was, there was some power, some force preventing me from lifting this machete up to chop your head off. And another warrior tells a story of a time where he had his, his bow and arrow ready to shoot John and he, he, there was something preventing him from letting it go. God spared them and used them to save this tribal group. But here's something even more crazy. This tribal group had a belief that if a woman gave birth to twins, that one of those twins was a demon and needed to be killed. And so they had to figure out which child was the demon and which child was the real child and then kill the demon and let the real child live. John and Betty took twin daughters to the mission field, to a violent, cannibalistic tribe that believed that one of their daughters was demonic and needed to be killed. Now you're probably sitting there thinking, isn't that irresponsible? Like, really? But wasn't there an element of irresponsibility to Ruth's plan and Naomi's plan? Like, go pretty yourself up, lie on the floor when he's in good spirit. Like, sometimes there's a real fine line between risk and irresponsibility. And I don't think God is calling us to irresponsibility. He is calling us to risk. And I don't think you ought to go to a tribal group that's cannibalistic unless God has clearly called you to go there. But here's the deal. He might call you to go there and die, like many of the missionaries in history past. God is not calling us to be irresponsible, but he is calling us to risk. To let go of the dream of a comforting, risk-free life and to put it all on the line. Be willing to do whatever it takes to see the name of Jesus made famous. Oh, to be like Ruth. To be like Paul and to be like Barnabas. Who would take huge risks for the sake of the kingdom. You know, one of our core values, and if you've just finished our recent Connect course, hopefully you heard this one, but one of our core values is that we want to be a church that is willing to do whatever it takes, whatever it takes, to see the name of Jesus made famous in this city. We have to be a church that is willing to take risks. Because if we don't, this city is facing a Christless eternity. We have to be a church that is willing to put everything on the line to plant more churches. You know, our vision to plant a church in 2018, that is crazy. I don't know many churches that within two years have started planning to plant their next church. That within the time frame of four years, we hope to plant another church. That's risky. Financially, that's risky. We're foregoing another probably staff member or putting one of our current staff on full time so we can provision this. That's risky. People might leave. This might sink us. It might, it might burn us out. It's a risk. But I believe there's a greater risk in not doing anything. There's a greater risk in not having churches that preach Jesus. Because how will they believe in him if someone is not sent? And how will they hear if someone does not preach? The greater risk is in doing nothing. So we need to be a church that is willing to do whatever it takes 
to see the name of Jesus made famous across this city with a faith, a bold, risky faith like Ruth's. And so my question for you this morning is, are you willing? Are you willing to do whatever it takes? Will you risk reputation and comfort, ridicule maybe, to make Jesus famous? Maybe this morning God is putting on your heart a conversation that you need to have. Maybe God is putting in front of your person that you need to love and bless and care for and show God's kindness to. Be the human agent of God's blessing. Are we willing to do whatever it takes to take a step out of the boat and onto the water and follow Jesus in obedience, in risky, bold faith, trusting that he is sovereign and good and glorious and gracious and big enough in our mistakes and uses us even when things don't seem to be going our way because that's the story of Ruth. Can't wait to get to the end till we see the completion of what God does in the mess of these widows' lives. But for now, the call on us is to be like Ruth, to trust God with everything and be willing to do whatever it takes to see the name of Jesus made famous. We're going to transition to a time of response and prayer. And in this moment, I would love for those of you who feel the Spirit of God pressing on your hearts, that you need to step out of the boat, that you need to be bold, that you need risky faith. Because the reality is we cannot do this ourselves. We need the empowering presence of the Spirit to do this. And so would you come to the back for prayer? We will have team who would love to pray for you in that. Or maybe you're here this morning and, and you realize that you desperately want the love of God in your life. There will be people who would love to pray for you and lead you in that. Come for prayer in this time. We're also going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together to my right and left down the front and on either side of the room here there are stations with bread and and grape juice, symbols that represent the body and blood of Jesus that was broken, spilt, shared to redeem us, a symbol of his love for us. And we invite you in this time of response to come forward, dip the bread in the grape juice, eat it remembering what Jesus has done. In that moment, remember, I am loved. I'm loved. Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian, please don't feel obliged to partake in this. Just sit back, enjoy, observe. But for the rest of us, church, let us worship the God who has rescued, redeemed us. Because here's the thing. Jesus didn't just risk his life. He gave it for us entirely. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have loved us. Beyond what we deserve, you have lavished your love upon us, God. And we rejoice in that this morning, that we see in the cross your commitment to us, your covenant with us, your kindness. So God, would you point us to Jesus now? Would you help us to see, God, that, that we need to have a faith like Ruth's, bold, risky faith for the sake of this city? God, would you work in us by the power of your Spirit this morning, transforming our lives, making us more and more like Jesus. It's his powerful name that we pray. And God's people said, Amen.